If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of John. John chapter 12, the fourth book there in the New Testament. John chapter 12. We are, as of this Sunday, getting on the, the path, the road towards um, the cross and towards the resurrection. Um, hopefully we're always on that path to some extent. Um, but as we anticipate the celebration of Easter and um, reflecting on the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday, we're just going to take these next um, five weeks and think about um, the final week of Jesus' life. And so we're going to land in John chapter 12 this morning, uh, the story of Mary anointing Jesus at Bethany. And I'll just give you sort of the big thought right off the bat. Um, you don't even have to write it down if you don't want to, because it's also the title of the sermon, which is this, that worship to Jesus is never wasteful. Worship to Jesus is never wasteful. And we're just going to kind of flesh that out this morning. Uh, we have to think of worship, though, purely in terms of, of music and singing. So we did worship, and now we're moving on to something else. Um, and we only do worship when we're singing. Of course, that's not true. Worship is an act of our entire lives. We, we worship, as I was trying to reflect, there's a lot of different ways you could define what worship is, and, and many of them would be right. Um, here's how I want us to think about it this morning, is that when we, we worship, we, we see the value of something or someone, and then we take everything that we value and invest it towards that. We Everything that we have of value gets put towards this, this one thing that we are worshiping. Um, so Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You could say where your treasure is, that's, that's what you worship. That's where your heart is. So the things that we love, the things that we treasure, we find what those are, and then we give them in worship to the thing that we treasure above everything else. So that's how we're going to think about worship. And to say that, that worship to Jesus is never wasteful, in saying that, we are saying that, that to give Christ in adoration and in gratitude everything that we value most in our lives, even to give him our very life, that that is not a waste. That that is never wasteful. To give Jesus all the things that we value is not a loss, but is a gain. That worship to him is never wasteful. This passage is going to show us that uh, there are two paths we can go down. It's a path of worship to Jesus or a path of prideful worship of self. Uh, we are all worships, but the question is, worshipers, but the question is, uh, is our worship a waste? If we are worshiping Jesus, it is never wasteful, but if we are worshiping ourselves, it always is. So as we read John 12, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see three characters. Uh, you're going to see Mary of Bethany. You're going to see Judas, and you're going to see Jesus. These are the main characters. There will be some other ones. But as we think about this idea about worship to Jesus never being wasteful, we're going to learn from each of these three individuals, both positive and negative lessons. So as I, I read the story, you're taking note of those three, Mary of Bethany, Judas, and Jesus. John 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Worship to Jesus is never wasteful. Let's think about the context. What's going on in this passage? What's... um. Where, where is this occurring within the narrative of Jesus' life that um, John is telling? Verse 1 tells us that it's happening six days before the Passover celebration. Uh, this would be uh, the third Passover that John records uh, that Jesus goes to, and this will be the last one, uh, because this, is, of course, is the Passover where Jesus himself becomes the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. As we look at the context, we can see that tension is, is rising around Jesus. You can see in chapter 11, the last verses beginning in verse 45 through 57. And then right after this in verses 9 through 11, they sort of bookend this whole scene. And, and there's tension about who Jesus is and what he's saying and how he's teaching amongst the, the religious elites. And that tension is going to overflow within just this just a week in the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, The frustration, the anger of people that were opposed to Jesus has been pushed even further because of what just happened. And what just happened is the events, are the events in chapter 11. And there we find the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now, I don't think the chief priests and the Pharisees were upset that someone who was dead was now alive. I don't think that's their issue. They're upset that this miracle has caused all the crowds to say, Jesus is the Messiah. It's causing them to worship him more. And it's this popularity, this excitement of the crowd that they want to squash. And the only way they know to do that is to get rid of Jesus. Things get even more out of hand for them. Um, When you arrive at verse 12 of chapter 12, it says, The next day the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And then we see the triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem and everyone's crying, Hosanna! And palm branches, and they say, look, the world has gone after him. Now we say, that's a wonderful thing, and they say, that's a terrible thing. And so tension is, is, is rising. Um, and, and in between the raising of Lazarus and the beginning of what we would call Holy Week, and in the midst of this atmosphere of murderous hostility towards Jesus, we're given this, this quiet scene of a dinner in Bethany a dinner that was that was held probably specifically to, to honor Jesus. Um, we, we sort of walk into the room, as it were. We're introduced to who's there. You, you walk in, and the first person that you see is Lazarus. Lazarus, who was dead and now has been raised uh, to life. He's, he's reclining at the table with Jesus. So you, you walk in, and it's not... Um, like potluck where we have the tables and the chairs, not like your home where you have tables and chairs, but these are probably couches of some sort where people would lay down, um, maybe cushions, and they would recline with their feet facing away from the table and, and, and eat. 
Um, our family tried this. They were learning something in school, and we laid on the floor and ate. And I always thought it would be weird. It wasn't half bad. It kind of makes a little sense. Um, but we, th- this is the scene, and Lazarus is, is there. Um, Lazarus is there with Jesus. And the disciples seem to have been at this meal. And, and the Gospels tell us that it was in the, the home of a man called Simon, uh, sometimes Simon the leper or Simon the, the Pharisee. That's where this is all happening. Along with Lazarus, you see Martha. Martha is Lazarus's sister, and not surprisingly, she is serving the meal. Uh, Martha is, is there serving, but I'm sure she's being careful to pause and to listen when she needs to, because you may, may remember the scene with Martha and, and her sister Mary, where Martha gets frustrated with Mary because Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening, and Martha is busy preparing everything, and she tells Jesus, my sister is not doing anything, and and Jesus lovingly rebukes Martha and says, Mary has chosen the better thing. I, I love that she's still serving here. I think Martha must have, had a, must have had a gift of hospitality, a gift of service, but there's a balance to it, and I think that she has learned that to a certain extent. Um, she hasn't given it up completely, but she's learning how to do it rightly. Um, so there's Lazarus. And there's Martha, and we start to wonder where is the third member of this household? Uh, where, where is Mary? Now let me begin by clarifying which Mary we're talking about. Mary is a popular name in the Bible. It's been a popular name all throughout history, and so we need to figure out what Mary are we talking about. This is not Mary, Jesus' mother, obviously. Um, it's not Mary Magdalene, and it's not Mary the mother of James. These are two women that were at the tomb on resurrection morning. That is not... Uh, the Mary that we're talking about. This is what, who we would call Mary of Bethany. That's how she's known. Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She's found three other places in the Gospels. Uh, the story we mentioned about her and her sister, where she's commended for sitting at the Savior's feet and learning. Uh, the story in chapter 11, where her brother had died and is raised from the dead. And then this scene here in the book of John, where she is mentioned by name in the other Gospels, she is not mentioned by name, but John mentions that this is Mary of Bethany, who is the one who anoints Jesus. Uh, her family is portrayed as, as very close to Jesus, good friends with Jesus. Um, I don't know, but based on the interactions with her sister, based on the way that she acts, I would say with some confidence, though not full confidence, that she is the younger of the two sisters. Um, Martha seems to have the air of a firstborn, doesn't she? Nothing against any firstborns out there. Um, but, but uh, and again, I, we don't want to presume too much, but she has this, this uh, feeling maybe that she's the youngest member of the family, or at least maybe the youngest sister. Um, but here in, in our story, she enters very quietly. In verse 3 is where we first find her. And she's holding a pound of expensive ointment. Uh, the other gospel writers tell us that this was in an alabaster jar or a box of some kind. Alabaster, um, I had to look it up, is a, it's a type of stone. It's a soft stone. Um, the perfume would have been sealed in this sort of container, and the only way to get to the perfume, to the ointment, would be to break that, that seal, to break the stone and open it up. So for that reason, uh, these things were expensive, and it would have been saved for a special occasion. And Mary has decided that that right now this is the occasion. So she breaks this this jar or this 
this box it says she just it's very simple the way it says that she has the, the jar of expensive ointment made from pure nard and she brings it in and she anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair the other gospel writers say that Mary anointed Jesus' head um, which would have been typical but John says that she anointed his feet um, and that she then wiped his feet with her hair. That may seem strange at first. Is there a discrepancy? I don't think so. It could be that the other disciples only remembered this initial anointing of his head because of, they were distracted by everything that happened afterward, the discussion as it were. Uh, but John is struck by this humility of her anointing his feet and then wiping his feet with her hair. It could be too that 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 she that, that Jesus stood for this, um, and Mary anointed his head, and a pound of ointment is a lot of of oil, and so that would have run down him and gone all the way down to his feet, and then at that moment she may have knelt, and and wiped his feet with her hair. It's a it's a striking scene, isn't it? Uh, a scene of love for Christ, a scene of of humility. The pulpit commentary I read, it says, uh, This simple act proclaimed the self-humiliation and adoration of her unbounded love, seeing that the loosening of a woman's hair was a mark of unusual self-abandonment. Hmm. I'm someone who has very little interest in drawing attention to myself. Um, I am struck then by the courage and the boldness of what she does. I, I like to be inconspicuous, you know. When I was in school, I'd never raise my hand and ask questions. I'd always talk to someone afterwards. You know, I didn't like. I don't like eating crunchy food in quiet places. You know, I, I just, I'm aware of that. I don't. I, I'm. A, I want to be inconspicuous. Uh, but Mary comes into this room, and if you think about the culture, it's a room filled with men who are eating with Jesus, and she sort of quietly disrupts everything. I often read this passage and I, I assume, well, they're in Bethany, so they must be at Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house, but we know that they're not. They're actually at Simon's house. I think it would it'd be easier if it's my own house, so I can do whatever I want. It's my house. But even more poignant is, is they're in someone else's house. Simon the Pharisee. But still, she, she doesn't seek any approval from anyone. She comes in she breaks open the ointment, she steps out in bold faith, and she trusts that this is an act that Jesus is going to smile on. I think that she probably tried to be at least a little bit inconspicuous. You know, she didn't come in saying, I'm going to anoint Jesus now, you know. She just sort of did it. And it may have remained somewhat inconspicuous, except for the fact John says that the scent filled the room. So if you can imagine... They're eating a meal, and then all of a sudden, a whole pound of perfume has been poured out on Jesus, and it just overwhelms. Whatever they smelled of the food is now gone. It just, the room is filled with this perfume. And I just wonder, you know, John's the only one that puts that detail in. I just wonder if he, you know, you know how scent brings back so many memories? How often maybe he smelled something, smelled this nard, or some people call it spike nard. If he smelled, every time he smelled that, that reminds me of that night when Mary anointed Jesus. So we're unpacking this scene and we're kind of answering this question of, of, of what do Mary's actions say about her? What, what do we learn from Mary? 
you might just write Mary if you if you want to take notes. And just here's the things that we see about Mary. You could fill this out even more than me, maybe. I mentioned her humility, the humility of this act before Jesus. We've talked about her boldness, the, the courage that she has to step into this situation. I think another thing that we might note is, and I'm not sure that I have one word for this, but that she has she has right values, meaning that, that she's valuing the, the immaterial, the the unseen more than the material and, and the, the seen. She's more concerned about her worship of Christ than she is about what she had planned to do with the ointment. Um, her focus is on Jesus. It's not on other people. She's not worried about what they think of what she's doing. Our previous definition of worship, we said it has to do with seeing something of greatest value and taking all that we value and laying it before that thing that we value most. And we see here that Jesus is what she values most because she takes what she has that is of great value and lays it at Jesus' feet. I think you think about what motivated this act. We would think probably that Mary is just is filled with gratitude and love for Christ. Love because of the way that Christ has personally loved her, but also so tied to what just happened in chapter 11. Jesus raised her brother from the dead. I just wonder, too, if, if maybe in the midst of that, as, as Lazarus was raised, I mean, just imagine what that scene would have been like and the swarms of people and, and what was going on there. And she's focused on Lazarus. And then maybe all of a sudden Jesus is gone and she never has a chance to, to say thank you to him, to worship him for this. And so now she's presented with this opportunity. And, and the pouring of the perfume reflects the, the gratitude and the love that is, that is just overflowing from her heart. And that's, that's what this is, what's going on here. Love, I think that you have to put that as what we learn from Mary, is, is love. Love of Christ. That's probably above everything else. This, this act reveals a deep affection and a deep love that Mary has for Jesus. Again, worship reveals what we value. It reveals what we love. And in this moment, it reveals that, that Mary loves Christ. She loves Jesus with her heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what this represents. We're thinking about Mary, but let's pause actually and think about, about Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus here? He doesn't speak until the very end. But in his silence, he's, he's certainly saying a lot, as Jesus often does. The, the very fact that Mary feels no, no fear, no apprehension in coming to Jesus and anointing him in this way reveals how, how approachable Jesus was to her. You know, we firmly believe that Jesus was not a prophet like other prophets. Jesus was God himself. And yet he was God in human form. And in the full humanity of Jesus... You see this humility and this, this grace that made him the kind of a man that Mary knew she could just she could come to. She could approach him with boldness and with abandon. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one who who allowed Mary to sit at his feet. This is Jesus who, when her brother died, Jesus cried with her. She knows she can come to Jesus. I think we see in this that the posture of Jesus towards Repentant sinners is a posture of welcome. 
Jesus is not standing with a stiff arm, but he stands welcoming us. He, he invites sinners and lepers and tax collectors to come to him. He tells his disciples, no, don't forbid the little children. Let them come to me. He calls, he says, I would like all the weary and all the heavy laden to come to me. He says to hungry people and thirsty people, I am bread and I am water for you. And he doesn't just welcome us, but he actually goes further and he he seeks us. He seeks out lost sheep. He pursues us in love. The whole mission of Jesus is not that we were seeking him, but that he has sought us. And I think it's this posture of, of welcome that in many ways allows Mary to feel the the boldness that, that she exhibits in this moment. And yet there's, there's the humility in the worship that she offers. And so she, she recognizes exactly who it is that she's being welcomed by. It's Jesus, the family friend, and Jesus, the, the Son of God, the Messiah. We think about Jesus as the Son of God and the, the Son of Man, and we see that this this posture, if we want to say that Jesus is welcoming, it has to be founded on what he has done through the cross to be able to call us to repentance and faith. The grace of God in the work of the cross has made Jesus approachable. He is unapproachable apart from that. We cannot come near to him. And Jesus becomes the mediator so that we can come to the Father. I think this balance is, is just, that's how we think about worship. That's how we come to Jesus in worship. It's a balance of, of boldness and, and humility in light of the person and the work of Christ. And that's, that shapes how we come to the Father through Christ. Any approach that we make to the throne of God is built on the grace that is found in Jesus and that alone. But we can come, we, we come to him in this, this spirit of repentance and, and humility. We don't deserve what he offers to us. We acknowledge that our sin separates us from him. And yet, we also see that he sent his son not to show us that we can't get close to God, but to provide the way for us to come close to him, to, to make it possible for us to be like Mary. We can come with boldness because of what Christ has done. So we recognize our sin but we rest in the mercy and the grace that is found in Jesus. I would just pause and say, if you've never come to Christ in any form of repentance and and faith, then when I say his posture is one of welcome, it is that, and he welcomes you. But if we do not, the posture is not one of welcome, but it is one of, of condemnation, because our sin condemns us. As we sang, God is holy. And his holiness thrusts sin from his presence, and we are sinful, and so we cannot come near to him. But he has made a way through his cross so that we can come to him, so that there can be a posture of welcome. Apart from him, we are condemned, but in Christ, there is no condemnation whatsoever. If you have never repented and believed in Christ for salvation, then the welcome of the Father is yours by coming to Christ through repentance and faith and for those of us who are in christ then we are invited to follow mary's example to to approach the throne and it's a throne where there is a king and he is the king of the world the king of the universe the creator and we come with with humility and deep reverence and we come knowing that he is our friend 
and he is our Father. It's that mixture of boldness and humility that we have in worship. I don't think it's one one or the other, but worship is contained in the both and that is there. In the beauty of, of this moment, Judas decides to talk. Uh, and it feels like in the movie, you know, where the guy comes in and all the music stops, or the record scratches, you know, and everything just goes silent. It's this beautiful scene, and then Joseph, or Joseph, Judas has to open his mouth. Uh, he brings a tension, a spirit of judgment into the room. Mary had filled the room with this beautiful smell of perfume. And Judas fills the room with the stench of self-righteousness, right? Look at verses 4 and 5. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I imagine that question is not directed to Mary. It's not directed to Jesus It's directed to the people near him, but it's spoken loud enough that Mary and Jesus hear Judas. And then John tells us a little aside that only he puts in here. Judas said this, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I love that little aside there. John reveals what's going on in Judas's heart. He outs Jesus or Judas as a as a thief. His concern is is not for the poor. His concern is for his own pocket, uh, and he stands in contrast to Mary. Mary, we said, valued the immaterial above the material. Judas just loves money. Judas is an example of what Paul writes in First Timothy six verses nine and ten. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If Judas had a tombstone, those are the words you could write on it that describes his life. Jesus offers similar warnings. He tells us that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. He speaks of the seeds, and one of the seeds is choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. He encourages us not to store up treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but to store up eternal treasures. Judas would rather have Mary barter with her perfume than to break it open and pour it on Jesus. If Mary's actions reveal a heart that worshipped and loved Jesus, Judas's words show that he did not love and did not worship Jesus. He loved himself, and he loved money more than he loved Christ. Right away, in Judas's life, we have a warning, don't we? Brothers and sisters, we have to beware that we are not more concerned with the fleeting treasures of this world than we are with the eternal reward of life that we have in Christ. We are not to be thieves like Judas. Not who take money from the money bag, but who rob God of the glory that is His. Of the worship that is His. He alone deserves our treasures. And often we choose instead to bow to the God of wealth. And and that is a temptation that is all around us and is in our own hearts. Having seen the wickedness of his heart, what do we do with that question? 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I think we have to deal with that question because when Jesus responds to Judas, he doesn't say, you just want the money because you're a thief. He answers the question as if it's coming from an honest heart. Um, if we separate what he asks from the motive with which he asks it, then that's a legitimate question, isn't it? Isn't this kind of wasteful? Why did Mary not take that and, and sell it and make money to give to the poor? Wouldn't it be better served? This is like a moment. How fast did that ointment flow? How soon was the scent gone? I think another way to phrase it is, is Mary's act of worship wasteful? Is not serving the poor an act of worship? Isn't that a better act of worship than what Mary did? I think the reality is that we could sort of fall off on either end of this, right? We could say that, that worship is all that matters. We could invest all of our resources in having a beautiful building, all our time in, in services and acts of private devotion. Or we could decide that care for the poor is the only thing that matters, that the, the fast, as Isaiah says, that Jesus wants is love for the poor, and we could start canceling services. Why, why are we sitting here? Shouldn't we be serving the poor? Why are we singing? Isn't that a waste? Well, what does Jesus say? It's always a good place to go, isn't it? <laughs> what does Jesus say? How does he respond? Look at the, the words of Jesus there. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He doesn't say, you're right, Judas. Mary, this was totally wasteful. So he doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, um, well, this may have not been the best thing to do, but Mary's heart was in the right place, and so we're okay with it. No, he unequivocally defends her. He says, Judas, leave her alone. He, he totally approves of everything that Mary did in this moment. It sounds similar. I love this. It sounds similar to what happens when Martha complains to Jesus that Mary isn't serving tables. Everyone's on Mary's case all the time. They don't like what Mary's doing. Uh, they, they're trying to squelch her devotion. I think we do the same. I think we are more often Martha and Judas than we are Mary. Um, we look at the ways that other people worship with their lives, and we assume that that has to be wrong because that's not what I would do. <laughs> I have a better idea of what would have been done with that ointment because that would have been better. Um, we could do that with individuals. We could look around our city and say, here's a church that does this, and that's not what our church does, so they must be wrong. That's not real worship because this is what real worship is. We need to be careful about labeling other people's acts of worship as foolish and, and wasteful, of quickly judging the intentions of a person's heart when they are worshiping God in ways that we might not. You know, we can think about ways that we express ourselves here in this service, but also just about the, the worship of our own lives. How do we invest the things that we have of value? How do we invest our time and our money and our energy? We can get pretty judgmental about that towards other people. Now, there's room for discussion if we are in community, surely. But if we would have a spirit of mutual love within the church, then we're going to feel the freedom to worship God as he directs with all that we are. And we're not going to assume that the differences amongst us about how exactly we worship are always wrong. Let's be careful that we are not like Martha and not like Judas. And when Mary comes and breaks the ointment, that we say, well, that, you know, that probably wasn't the best thing to do. But to trust others. 
You know, Jesus has a unique advantage here because he knows why Mary is doing what she is doing, right? He says she's doing it to keep it for the day of my burial. She's anointing him in connection with this coming death and burial. Verse 7 is really hard. We can maybe talk about it tonight before we pray, but um, I think it would seem that Mary, and Mary who listened more than she talked, I was thinking on the way to church today, how few actual words of Mary of Bethany are recorded. She doesn't talk at all here. All we see are her actions. And in the story with Martha and Mary, she doesn't talk at all. I think the only place she has a speaking part is in John 11. It's just her actions. But Mary, who, who listened more than, than she talked, understood more than everyone else in the room. The, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection seemed to take everyone by surprise. And it seems as if Mary knew what was going on. That she had an insight because she listened. It may be that this learning at Jesus' feet fills us with direction and humility and boldness to worship. Back to Jesus' words though. He says, leave her alone. Keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus understands what she's doing and why she's doing it. But he also talks about, this is like a unique circumstance, Judas. I think there's an allusion to Deuteronomy 15.11. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So there's, there is a command rooted in the Old Testament scriptures to care for the poor. Judas is, is, is right to a certain extent that we need to be concerned about the poor. In contrast, though, to that, Judas says, but you don't always have me with you. There's something unique about what is happening here right now, Judas. The uniqueness of Jesus' presence on the earth made Mary's act more appropriate than selling it and giving the money to the poor would have been. It was the right thing to do. So now the question is, well, what about us? (laughs) So Jesus says, the circumstance is unique. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. So we could look at that statement and say, well... We have the poor with us. The poor are still with us, and we need to be concerned about that. There is a command for us to be concerned about the poor. Is Jesus with us? That's the tough question, I think. He is, not in the same way here. If you had a jar of ointment of some sort of perfume that you wanted to pour out on Jesus, you can't do that. (laughs) There's no opportunity for you to do that like Mary does here. But he is still with us. Is there a place for this kind of costly affection for Christ? Or should we just take everything that we have and leverage it for the poor? I actually think that Jesus gives us the tension. And I think that we just, we live in the tension. That we live in the tension that there is a time of of worship in a unique way. And there's also the reality that the poor are with us. and, And we worship Christ through serving them. It's interesting, Jesus says, the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. Think about how that will be reversed in the new kingdom. There will be no poor, and Jesus will always be with us. So in the new kingdom, we won't have to worry about the poor anymore, because Jesus will always be with us, and our lives will be one of worship. Always, everything. We pave the streets with gold, because we don't have to sell it to help the poor, because there are no poor. But we live in the tension now, don't we? And we have to wrestle with exactly how we worship God with all that we are. Was, was Mary's act wasteful? 
that some say that could have been like $25,000 worth of perfume that she poured out on Jesus. Like a year's wages. Was that a waste? Well, we said worship of Jesus is never wasteful. Of course, we could put some caveats in there, but let's just sit with that. Worship to Jesus is never wasteful. So now we have the difficulty of this monetary value. Know this, I'm not going to say sell everything that you have and we're going to have a second offering in a little bit. I don't think it's about monetary value. That's not the point here. Actually, I think what this passage is calling us to is to offer up something much more than money and much more than the expensive things that we have in our home. I think it's telling us to offer up ourselves. In the epistles, Paul says that we are to be what? Living sacrifices. He says, my life is poured out as a drink offering in service to Christ. We are to be filled with such a love for Christ, like Mary was, such gratitude for what he has done, not just in raising our brother from the dead, but in raising us from the dead. And we are so filled with love and gratitude for Christ that we start looking around for what is valuable in my life. Not that I'm going to repay Jesus. No, that's, that's, that's not the gospel. That's legalism. We're not repaying Jesus for what he's done. But out of gratitude we say, is there anything in value, of value in my life that I can bring to Jesus and break open and give to him? And the only thing that we can find is like everything. <laughs> it's our whole lives. Our very souls. That's what we give to Christ. That is the thing of greatest value that we have. John Piper summarizes this chapter in a way that only John Piper can. He says this, It's a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. So there is this sense in which the value of Jesus and the love of Jesus, that in some ways we're not trying to repay it, but we're trying to bring our affections and our love and our worship of Christ with our whole lives to somehow reflect all that Christ has done for us. Our love and our affections are shown in different ways. It could be service to the poor and to others. It could be mission work. It could be prayer and fasting. But it's, it's finding what is of value and giving it to Christ. I say give your life. What do I mean? What's the most valuable thing to you? I'll tell you what the most valuable thing to me is. Time. My time is ten times more important to me than my money. I don't know if that's an exact ratio, but that just came out. But time is what we value most in society, isn't it? You're here because you see this not as a waste. I hope that it's not a waste. But time is what is more valuable than anything else. Are we willing to try to find ways to seek to use our time every moment in full devotion to Christ? to rise early and to to meet him in prayer and meditation on his word, to come here and to spend time with God's people, to find ways that we can can serve him in in reading, in, in service to others, in service to the poor, that we give our time. We don't say, it's mine, and I am holding on to it as best I can. I'm using all my time for me. But we say, how can I sacrifice my time in a way that honors Christ? It could be It could be your job. That's not to say that you need to be a missionary or a pastor. uh, But that we can all use our our work as a means of honoring and worshiping Christ. And work can take over. Work can become the thing that we sacrifice to rather than the thing that we sacrifice to God. 
Are we seeking a promotion at the expense of being devoted to Jesus in different ways? That work becomes more important than my devotion to Christ. That it becomes such a big thing that I am unable to worship Christ through my work. It may be that you turn down a promotion because you say, you know what, it's just going to take too much time. I need to devote my time and my energy to service of Christ in this way and in this way to my family in all these ways, that's how I honor Christ. And this is going to rob me of that opportunity. Or we'd be willing to lose our jobs because they're asking us to do something that's dishonoring to Christ. And we say, I'm more concerned about honoring Christ and worshiping Him with my life than selling out to you. It could be your abilities, your talents. Do you say, I'm just going to use everything for my own personal benefit? Or do we say, how can I take what God has made me and how God has gifted me and use it in a way that honors Him, to sacrifice that to Him, to break it open and pour it out to Him. We could go down the list. What do we value? We value our weekends. (laughs) We value our vacations. We value so many things. What What is the thing that you value in your life? And again, I'm not talking about stuff on your shelf. It could be that. I've told this story before. It just came into my mind. I remember a guy at the church we were at previously who who flew a plane. He had a plane that he owned. He had a place like Bowman Field, just a little plane. And he realized that it was taken away from his devotion to Christ, and he sold it. And instead he had a computer flight simulator, and he'd spend time flying on that. But he did it out of love for Christ, because his devotion to Christ was greater than his devotion to his plane. Judas says Mary is being wasteful. But if Mary is wasteful, then here's what I would say. I invite you to waste your life. <laughs> to, to pour it all out, every last drop of your life, the whole pound, uh, in devotion to Christ. Your money, your time, your abilities, everything that you are, waste it all in worship to Christ through Jesus. And know that worship to Jesus like that is never wasted. Judas says Mary is being wasteful, but she is pouring out her life in worship to Jesus, who is infinitely worthy. And what we value, what we truly value, determines our own value. A man named Henry Skugel wrote, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Your worth is measured by what you love. Our worth is not determined by ourselves. It's determined by what we love. What is Judas love? Judas loves money. Judas loves himself. And what is Judas remembered for? John doesn't tell us when Judas first plotted to betray Jesus. But if you look at Mark's account, the anointing happens and the next paragraph is when Judas leaves to go meet with the chief priests and the Pharisees to figure out a way to deceive Jesus and sell him. I think that what happened, that this is the tipping point for Judas. He looks at this and he says, this is totally ridiculous. What she did is ridiculous. And the fact that Jesus supported it is is even more ridiculous. And it pushes him over the edge. Mary's act reveals her heart, but her act reveals Judas's heart too and shows what he loves. And that selfishness and that betrayal is how we remember Judas. In the, all the lists of the disciples, every time that the disciples are listed, you know who's always last? Judas. And you know who always has a parenthesis behind his name? Judas. And it says, the one who betrayed him. That's exactly how Judas is mentioned. If you look at John chapter 18, three times it says, the one who betrayed him. The one who betrayed him. The one who betrayed him. 
That is the marker of Judas's life. His value is determined by what he loved. 30 pieces of silver. That's all it took. What is Mary known for? How is Mary of Bethany remembered? Turn back probably just a page to John 11. John 11, the first two verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 2. Now this is chapter 11 before it happens, right? It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. In the other gospel accounts, when she does it, it says, Jesus says, she will always be remembered for doing this. That that is what Mary of Bethany is always remembered for. She's remembered as someone who loved Jesus in a boundless way. Money was not her God. Outward beauty was not her God. The praises of others was not her God. Her family was not her God. Jesus alone was her God. And she made this sacrifice, a costly sacrifice, to show her affection for Jesus. And so I invite you, let's join Mary. Let's let's lose our lives for the sake of worship to Jesus. Let's totally waste our lives in the eyes of every Judas in the world. Everyone will look at us and say, "Wow, what a waste." And we will know that that we are not wasting our lives but investing them in what really matters. May our lives be marked forever by signs of of deep affection for Christ, knowing that worship to Jesus is never, ever wasteful. But in fact, it's the only way. Worship to Jesus, giving him all that we have, that is the only way that our lives will ever have true, lasting, eternal value. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on this beautiful passage in God's word. And I pray that God would speak to each of our hearts. And then I will close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful sister in the faith. Thank you for for Mary of Bethany and all that she can teach us, in not even in words, just in simple action, about what it means to pour out our lives to you, about what it means to truly value and truly love and have deep affection for you. God, convict the different... Judas parts of our hearts that love other things more than you and would be willing to sell you in devotion to other things. But help us to see what we value and how we can lay that at your feet, how we can pour it out as an offering to you. And Father, we thank you that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. We thank you that because of the cross, his posture towards us is one of welcome. It is to, to come to him and to lay down our lives, Lord, not in fear, but in humility and in adoration, knowing, Lord, that, that you will receive what we give and you will turn it for good and that you will turn it for your glory. Lord, we do look forward to the day when there are no poor among us and you are always with us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. These words of benediction as we go.
As we go, let us be resolved to pour out our lives in worship to God, whether through acts of devotion or service to the poor or countless other sacrifices of praise, knowing that our lives are not wasted, but truly found when we lose them for Christ's sake. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.